Behind this door is another dimension. Welcome to Enter the Flow Zone podcast. This is the only podcast that teaches people the secrets of peak performance, positive psychology, and mindset mastery to help unlock your flow state. Here's your host, certified flow coach and international happiness consultant, Sumed Chatterjee. Okay, awesome. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Enter the Flow Zone podcast. I'm your host, Sumet Chatterjee. What's happening? We have uh, a great <laughs> guest expert <laughs> with you guys. And, you know, I was just, I just got off of a, a flow state program right now. I was just doing an online program. It's called Insanely Gifted. Uh, the author of the book, Insanely Gifted, is Jamie Katzo, and he does a lot of interesting things. Uh, he has the documentary that he uh, made with Ram Dots. Uh, so he, he had that documentary, Becoming Nobody. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that he talked about was all about improvisation, stuff I was familiar with. And it was just fascinating, man. And, you know, uh, I also I did a recently on my YouTube channel, I did a flow state breakdown of Dr. Strange. So that was really exciting in terms of, you know, tapping into that timelessness, like how can we look at that character to really teach us about, you know, uh, the whole rebirth and the aspect of like memento mori, like remembering that time is limited and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, we have, uh, speaking of doctors, <laughs> we have Dr. Brent Hogarth. He's a sports and clinical psychologist. He's a head coach of Flow Research Collective. It's an honor to have him on this show. How are you doing, brother? Dumet, I'm doing well, man. I'm uh, I'm actually I'm resting my foot up here. I, I sprained it in a basketball game a few days ago, but I, I found out it's not broken. So I feel like flow is is coming back to me strong here today. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm excited to connect with you. Excited to share, you know, some of my background and what I've learned about flow state uh, with your audience here. And uh, yeah, man, let's let's have fun, brother. Speaking of Ram Dass, you know, a lot of I've been looking into a lot of his quotes and some of his writings recently, and he speaks certainly from a, a deeper state of flow that is isn't the, the the scientific use of the word that we often refer to in flow science, right? When we're talking about flow, it's this absolutely absorbed, engaged, optimal pre productivity, efficient state. Uh, where, which is very much so dependent on a lot of external conditions. But when you talk to, to people like Ram Dass or spiritually oriented individuals, there's this deeper sense of flow, we might call it Tao, and that individuals are able to connect to where they're creating order, even in the chaos itself. And that's a, a deeper, unique part of, you know, my role at FRC is how to help individuals create conditions so that they can get optimally engaged in tasks and create order in them, but also how to step into a deeper sense of flow when the chaos is unavoidable and, and to find that, that ease and order. So I love that you brought up Ram Das, man. Yeah. Man, that's wonderful. It's, it reminds me of how we have these two parts of the hemispheres, right? The left brain, and the right brain, and, and it's basically trying to make order out of chaos, right? That's what it's trying to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, I've heard of the fact that, you know, flow state is kind of linked to spiritual experience or at least this quasi-mystical experience. And I like how you uh, differentiated that from the productivity elements of flow because, yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, misconceptions out there, let's say, right? 
Yeah. Well, you know, flow state is obviously nothing new. It's been repackaged and termed in many different ways. But if we go back to, you know, William James and the uh, spiritual religious experiences, and then we go to Maslow peak experiences, and now we go to Csikszentmihalyi and the flow state, it's, it's a state that's ubiquitous, it's universal, and it can be experienced in so many different contexts. And the context is very much so is what's dependent on what we call it right? When we're in a religious service, it's a religious experience. When we're out in nature, it's often experienced as a, a peak experience. When it's in a sport or professional setting, we often call it a, a flow state. And so, yeah, man, it's, uh, I think that the, the reason why I just brought that up is because when a lot of people come towards flow training, uh, Csikszentmihalyi actually originally warned about individuals who are s- s- uh, solely seeking these peak moments, Right. Uh, Abraham Maslow, interesting enough, at the end of his life, the individual who brought peak experiences to the forefront in psychologies made a shift from focusing on peak uh, performance to what he called this uh, plateau experience, which is this more enduring sense of spiritual consciousness or sense of order in life and, and something that doesn't go from these huge highs to these huge lows. And that's, you know, I think as, as coaches and individuals, that's where we want to land on. We want to have those peak experiences, but we don't want those valleys uh, to bring us down to, you know, such challenges moments and and uh, what I would say I'm not sure if you're aware I did my dissertation specifically on the dark side of flow so we can kind of run through that in, in any way too that's awesome brother yeah I definitely remember seeing you in that in that video and yeah for sure that the dark side of flow is very interesting that whole like bliss junkie thing right to how do we escape from well just having these Having flow state beat is just like transitory, like temporary state to something much more long lasting or as you mentioned mm-hmm. perfectly like the word plateau. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly like how can we instead of meditating for five minutes and then forgetting about it, like how can we meditate all day? Right. Yeah. Live through the meditation. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, that's- a lot of people get in trouble. So I actually got I, I got kind of hip to the word, uh, the dark side of flow uh, to, from a book called In the Zone, Transcendental Experiences in Sport. And this is an older book by Michael Murphy, who created the Esalen Institute and another, another individual. And they spoke about what they called the spiritual underground of sport. So this book is probably 30 years old or something. And it talked about when people were finding flow in sport and there was no understanding of what that state was. People were lost. People were confused. And they then try to you know, find these states through, you know, drug, sex, rock and roll, they'd leave the sporting complex and, and kind of be disorganized and get into trouble. And and so there's a a lot that is has been done and evolved to put a language to this state and to the dark side of it so that people can manage it more effectively. And what they had hit in that book is that we need a, a, a daily philosophy where we could connect to that peak experience in the mundane. And so when we're able to do that, then it's not the seeking or grasping or the aversion when we're not in it, but kind of a releasing into that, uh, whatever we want to call it, consciousness itself or, or flow. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going on a riff here. I, I want to know what, what do your clients or, you know, people that are watching this video, what do they want to learn? What are they most curious about? Well, um, I was thinking about giving them a brief explanation of, of what you do and, you know, the, the Flow Research Collective. Could you give them maybe a, a bit of a background for, for just the new listeners? Yeah. 
let's let's start with that. So um, as you mentioned, I, I trained as a sport and clinical psychologist. So I have my undergraduate degree was in kinesiology. My master's degree was in sports psych and my doctorate is in clinical psychology. And actually after my undergraduate, I, I went to India, spent some time in uh, some, a couple of Buddhist monasteries. I did a yoga teacher training course. It was at that point in my life that I kind of made some big shifts. I grew up as a kind of national athlete, uh, gymnast, and kind of an all-around hellraiser. I was in and out of court. I was sent to military school. You know, I, I, I knew the dark side of flow very well. To be honest, fully frank with you, my deepest flow experiences in my life, especially at that age, was getting into street fights or being a graffiti artist and, you know, bombing trains or billboards. And that's what I knew flow was. And I came, you know, somewhat addicted to that. So I needed to learn later on in my life, like, how can I reach these peak moments in something that's going to live to or lead to a value-driven life. And, and so after college, going to India really grounded me in a lot of different uh, perspectives that helped me integrate that, um, that experience into a more enduring plat plateau experience. And so, yeah, I, I, um, I, at my undergraduate, or sorry, at my graduate degree, I worked as a clinical psychologist in substance abuse. I did ex existential therapy with older folks. I worked in a couple universities. I worked at University of Texas, El Paso with the student athletes there and in their counseling center. And then a couple years ago, I worked at Lehigh University just outside New York and Philadelphia with the student athletes there. And then I, right after that, you know, Stephen Kotler, good friend of mine who we connected actually over my dissertation and over skiing, um, hit me up and asked me to join Flow Research Collective, which is essentially, I think, the world's leading flow state uh, organization. We have around 5,000 people in our online programs right now. We have a few kind of platform programs. Our first one's called Zero to Dangerous. This is an eight-week uh, mindset training course. We have this other course called Flow Trainer Accelerator, where it's it's zero to dangerous, but then it's built on uh, how to help other coaches train into flow. And then our last program is called Art of Impossible. It's a year-long mastermind. And so essentially, as clients go through these programs, they work with a neuroscientist or a psychologist uh, such as myself for uh, additional one-on-one -on -one coaching. And so that's my role, man. I, I get the joy to meet with people all around the world every day, um, whether it's individual coaching or, or large groups. And talk about how to optimize performance, you know, coming from a background in clinical psych where it's anxiety, depression, you, you name it, and now just focus, focusing on optimal performance. It's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of joy. Uh, it keeps me uh, having to learn and grow as a clinician. And, you know, maybe I'll just share something that we can kind of build off on. You know, my background as a clinical psychologist is focused around what's called acceptance commitment therapy. So what's known as ACT. ACT is all around how to develop what's called psychological flexibility, which is essentially the ability to allow our emotions or internal experience to unfold, but still move towards what is our value. So value-driven behavior. And how this connects back to flow for me is what typically holds people back from accomplishing their goals is when they prioritize a certain emotional state over their behaviors. So as a flow coach, I want to help my clients most effectively change and develop an effective relationship with fear typically so that they can see it as something they can move towards and not something they're trying to avoid or control, which will only keep them away from actually developing skill in their craft and finding more and more flow. So, you know, there's so many hacks, so many behaviors and 
habits that we can all practice. But if we don't have that core ability to effectively regulate our emotions, we're fucked. So that's that's uh, something we can build off on and uh, I can talk more of ACT or, or what have you. Awesome, brother. Like that's that's absolutely a synchronicity. I was just looking up this uh, Carl Jung quote where the, the fear is where your next task is, right? Like I was so fascinated by that because, you know, with a theater background, there was always this element of, you know, the audience is watching me. Like, what if I get embarrassed, especially improv, right? There's like this feeling of like stage fright. And that's actually what got me into the zone uh, later on in my life. I started to notice that feeling and that's what directly led me to this flow state journey, you know? And so like, could could you speak a little, uh, could you speak about, the idea of risk being a flow trigger and how people can lean into their fear and not just be so terrified of this fight or flight feeling, but actually use that anxiety uh, for them. Or um, I believe that, you know, York sees dots and has that stress and, you know, that that response of like arousal and stress, right? So there's a certain level where uh, it keeps your performance high and then it drops. So uh, how can people get into this state and how would somebody be able to use risk to be able to keep them in the zone yeah great question submit uh Sumed. so the you know when we talk about flow triggers uh, what we're really all talking about is things that drive our attention into the present moment and that reduce the amount of thinking we're, we're doing because what happens in flow right is we shift from what's called kind of conscious or explicit information processing a lot in the frontal cortex to what more called implicit or unconscious processing, which is more deeper brain structures. And that's really, you know, that my favorite quote is that Plato quote, where the first and greatest victory is to conquer oneself. And that's what's happening in flow. We're conquering oneself by becoming so absorbed and engaged in a task that literally the part of the brain that, uh, whether we call it the default mode network or not, that where which houses the sense of self gets essentially disintegrated or, or deactivated. And so, to come back to risk or fear, what we know is that it gives us motivation or sorry, it helps us pay attention for free. We can leverage it. When we're fearful, we're, we really fucking care. We have to look out for ourselves. We've been evolutionary evolved to be in flow in moments of fear. If again, we can see it as an opportunity to move towards something. And, and so what I would often say around fear is there's a lot of different ways to play with fear that's not just physical. And so whether it's emotional risk in a deep conversation with a partner or a loved one, or whether it's uh, creative risks in improv, taking a chance on, on, on a new uh, you know, joke you're going to bring in or whatnot. And then certainly later on, physical risk is a great way. We've all been in, let's say, um, a potential car accident or even in our car accident or in an extreme sport where time has slowed down, we've been engaged. So fear, you know, what I'd give is a practical takeaway is when we go into moments of fear, if we're able to accept that the fear is there, essentially, if we don't turn on what we can call the struggle switch, which is like, oh, fuck, I don't want to be the, I don't want this fear to be here, which only leads to more additional emotions. So if we turn off that struggle switch and we can see that as we enter this, this stage where there's fear, if we can say, you know what, 
I know fear is showing up here and it's appropriate because I'm moving towards my values of being a creative individual. I'm moving towards my values of making an impact on other people. Whatever our values are, they give us an increased willingness to say, I'm going to burden this fear. And, and not only am I willing to burden it, but it's fucking appropriate that I'm fear, fearful now. If I'm not fearful, I don't give a fuck about what I'm doing. So leveraging values as a way to cognitive reframe those emotions and 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 just as one last thing we can continue to build on is we know that our emotions the impact that they have on our behavior is 100% dependent on our interpretation of what they mean right so the same thing fear for me can mean something completely different for you and and the outcome of that fear or that arousal um, is it's a good gateway into understanding what our interpretation is. And so, yeah, I'll leave it at that and let you jump off wherever you like, man. Yeah. So that's, that's an incredible um, epiphany that I just had in terms of how, you know, how a uh, flow state is said to be the, the perceived challenge and the perceived skills, right? The, the challenge skill ratio. And it said that, you know, anxiety is when your skill set in handling that task is really low, right? So it's like really high challenge. So, uh, what are some ways that people can um, essentially deal with that anxiety in a sense, right? Like how can they reach their uh, skill set and would it be much more of an attaining of mastery of the skill set or how would people go about like really approaching that anxiety? Yeah, you know, it's, I want to be sensitive because I know, you know, there's anxiety and fear, um, maybe what's quite common. And then there's like, you know, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. And so I'm not really going to go too much into, you know, those that are suffering from clinical anxiety, which um, I don't want to kind of just gloss over. So I just want to make that differentiation at first. But, you know, for those that are suffering from um, from fear and, and, and let's say some anxiety as well. There's a lot of things that I will focus on. And first and foremost, I go back to the positive psychology basics. So what I mean by positive psychology basics, these are the well-established uh, evidence-based approaches that help people optimize their neurobiology. So to reduce fear or anxiety. So these are gratitude. This is sleep. This is mindfulness. One of the biggest pieces that we often forget for entrepreneurs or those that are aspiring to be great is social connectedness. Maslow had this great quote. He said that, you know, personal development is a two step forward, one step back process. And so when we're, you know, striving towards self-actualization, we often need to take a step back first and say, am I connected with, you know, my loved ones, my friends, so that we have the increased willingness to take that risk. If we don't have social connectedness, we don't have a secure base, it's very hard to say, you know what, I'm gonna go for that fucking risk. I'm gonna go towards that anxiety. So social connectedness. And then uh, two others that I'll just kind of really emphasize because I'm working a lot on it right now um, and with a lot of clients is the development of optimism and hope. We know that these are trainable skills and as an entrepreneur, creative artist, um, athlete, actor, if we're not optimistic, meaning we believe that good things are, are happening uh, and we're not hopeful, meaning that we have a, a capacity to be a master of our own life, it's very hard to, to take risks and to move towards those states that bring us anxiety. So I, I typically, again, will start on 
these positive psychology basics. And then the two places I'd like to jump to next is really focusing on internal locus of control and a growth mindset. So what I mean by internal locus of control is that I have a sense of self-determination in how my life is going to unfold. If I don't have that, if we don't have that in life, we feel like those challenges you're mentioning are happening to us, not for us as an opportunity to grow. And so locus of control is a big piece for me. And then I know you are aware and most people are that a growth mindset is simply, you know, if I don't have this skill yet, I'm going to develop it, you know? And, and so that having that uh, capacity or that beginner's mind is, uh, you know, that's some of the, the places that I start. And I'll just say one, one thing, you know, we can, I can go through a lot of different kind of mindset hacks that I share um, moving forward. But if I don't start with the body with my clients, and what I mean by the body is if I don't help my clients be able to regulate their emotions when they're in a high stressful situation, all the mental skills we might focus on, let's say positive self-talk, goal setting, whatever, they won't be able to access them because they'll be so caught up in their emotional arousal that they that that their perception just gets so narrowed. So I often will focus on breath work as a way for them to just change their relationship to arousal and to stay stay in that uncomfortable zone. So I know I'm saying a lot, you know, take that wherever you like, man. No, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah, you brought up a lot of very crucial and interesting points. And I think that for a lot of people who are fearing that sense of the, the recovery phase. I wanted to speak to you about this because uh, what you <laughs> just reminded me before we started recording is that you went through an injury recently, right? And so what can people do in that recovery? There we go, right? <laughs> so LM. LM. <laughs> so uh, what can people do in that state of like, you know, they're in the recovery phase, they've gone through maybe an injury and, and like, what is the process of them to heal? Like, what, what would you tell someone who's an athlete or someone who's uh, going through that process right now, similar to what you might be going through, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's to look to see what are the perceived benefits of this injury, right? So when I work with a lot of athletes, uh, especially when their identity is completely tied to their performance, they can be crushed when an injury occurs. So what, what we'll often focus on is like, who else are you besides just this athlete? And, and even within the athletic realm is, what are the other uh, perceived benefits you can get from this injury? Maybe it's, you're gonna develop a closer relationship to your teammates, your coaches. Maybe you're gonna, you know, through this process, you know, develop a greater uh, IQ on the sport. Uh, maybe you're gonna develop greater biomechanics. So if there's a way to essentially recreate goals that they can move towards and they have a sense of uh, self-determination in, in moving that direction, then they're able to find flow again and move out of um, that struggle stage or stay in that recovery stage. Because what we know, right, is flow is an action-oriented state. We need a clear goal to move towards to find flow. So that's that's the focus. It's you know how to be present, accepting of the the drama that shows up when an injury occurs, and uh, you know such as my my own foot. I definitely went through you know some some grief around this, uh, but then it's okay as quick as possible. How can we go to what can I grow now? How can I grow now? How can I develop and to just get reengaged in that process? And what we know is that um, we find. Mo the, sorry, the greatest moments of our life is when we overcome something that is challenging, something that stretches us. So if we're able to take that into an injury, take that into a tragedy of life, we can actually 
kind of leave that tra tragic moment and, and find what we might call post-traumatic growth or development as a result. And, and we can look back on these moments and say, you know what, fuck, for all that challenge brought up to me, it, it uh, was one of the most meaningful moments in my life because I showed up. And so that, yeah, that's, that's something I might kind of throw out there first. Awesome. That's yeah. super helpful. Uh, something that I just got a flow state download right now <laughs> in terms of this concept of the autotelic personality, right? Certain people have more a flow propensity or, or certain characteristics uh, in regards to getting into flow. So uh, yeah. could you get into a little bit about that and maybe uh, somehow link it towards the addiction? Because I've heard uh, Stephen also mentioned that, you know, scientists don't like to use the term addictive. They use the term autotelic, right? So um where is the link there and, and could you speak a little bit into that uh, autotelic nature yeah so autotelic is a two two uh, greek words brought together autotelic meaning se essentially self-goal so when people are intrinsically motivated doing things for the sake of doing them they tend to be autotelic a uh, high uh, personality characteristic of autotelic individuals is openness to experience and extroversion so when someone is quite open to an experience um, there tend to be uh, find more acceptance and, and trust in what's unfolding. And, and just to kind of make a side note here, when I work with clients, if I want to help them find that plateau experience, we kind of opened up to earlier. It's, it's really around how to develop trust and optim or trust and acceptance of what's showing up because then that leads to a sense of order, right? And if flow is really just a sense of order and consciousness, if we can trust and accept what's showing up, then we have that experience of one right decision leading to the next. And so, um, yeah, I went on a little bit of tangent there, but to come back to your specific question around uh, autotelic, uh, so high, high openness to experience, extroversion, and ultimately, we talk a lot about what we call this internal motivation stack, which is around how to uh, stack uh, curiosity, passion, and purpose on top of each other so that we have this essentially uh, an ability to get immediate feedback as we move throughout our life that we're moving towards things that we really care about, right? It's, it's one thing to kind of have an, an intuitive knowing that I care about, let's say, uh, saving the planet. But if I am conscious and I've written that out and know exactly what are the ways that I'm curious about how to save the planet, when I do that, I get a sense of reward that keeps me a little bit more engaged, gives me a little bit dopamine, norepinephrine, that uh, gives me a sense of a greater flow. And the one other piece around the autotelic personality that I think is, um, is can be highlighted is the value of curiosity. And I'm curious to kind of pull on this with you a little bit more. When we, you know, even if we're, I'll, I'll give an example. I've worked in addiction for many years. And a lot of times when I've worked with addicts, I don't necessarily have to say, listen, stop smoking, stop doing your drug. I want you to just be curious about what's occurring when you want to. Just be really, really curious about what's occurring during that that prior, when you're smoking that cigarette, after, if you can just be curious, we get a sense of feedback that we typically won't receive if we're just trying to judge ourselves and control our behaviors. And we get a reward for being curious that keeps us a little bit more engaged too. So I went on a, on a few different tangents there. Uh, jump on wherever you like there. Samir. I love I love that. I, I've personally used the 25 uh, curiosity list, you know, and, and gone through that process. And I, I 
to go through that process myself with a few of my clients that it's just a fascinating, you know, technique to be able to just tap into that curiosity. Like that's the gateway, right. Towards that passion and purpose. Like just to know that is such a gift. So thank you for sharing that with, with our audience. I think that's going to be a lot of value. And I had a question around you. So you mentioned flow state philosophy, right. And how we can maintain that. Uh, what would be the first kind of initial steps for somebody to create that philosophy for themselves? Cause I know that, I mean, personally, I've read, you know, a bit of stoicism and Taoism and I've connected them as like the yin yang kind of the two poles, you know, meeting, but I'm sure for everybody that it's a different process, they can pull from lots of different things and they can maybe <laughs> get their head kind of processing random information. However, what would be the first step for somebody to truly create their own flow state philosophy? Mm -hmm. Good, good question. You know, it's, it, let's define what we mean by flow state philosophy. What, what I'm pointing at is the recognition that flow is elusive and transitory in one of the most difficult states to enter. And so how to place this state into a workable philosophy so that we can move throughout the moments of our life that are mundane, that are boring, that are scary, anxiety, and, and not go crazy because and struggle with it because we're not in flow. And so what I'll typically do is recognize that, a, you know, flow state is under the umbrella for me of self-regulation or self-control. That's what I'm seeking. I'm, see I'm seeking to have discipline in my life or self-regulation and flow state is an element of that, but it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not of greater value to me than self-discipline. So that's, that's my focus. And, and where I came to in my dissertation is I created a theory of optimal performance where it's really around the balance of flow and mindfulness and using mindfulness to effectively choose situations that are safe, that are value congruent, where I can enter flow in and, and not find flow in areas that are gonna to lead to uh, not a good life. And, and what I mean by that is, we talked a little bit earlier about how flow is a state where we shift into the unconscious. And so there's a big trade-off that happens when we shift into the unconscious. We, we, we lose great flexibility emotionally, behaviorally, and we shift into great efficiency. So that's the benefit of flow. We're very efficient. We're very productive. We're very creative, but we can lose the flexibility to effectively say, and self-awareness to say, oh, maybe I shouldn't be moving in this direction. You know, maybe when I'm getting to this fight, it's time to stop, not just keep moving towards uh, being effective and being efficient here. And so my, my focus with the, having a sound philosophy for flow is one, recognizing that it's an elusive state and that there's actually deeper meaning and being able to be present in all of life that shows up. Csikszentmihalyi actually spoke about and I'll send you my dissertation you can dive into this I, I really kind of talked a lot about this he had these two terms vita active and vita contemplative and he says you know vita active is taking action which is flow state vita contemplative is obviously more contemplative state and he said a good life results from having more contemplation than action so that we can choose the essentially the direction that we want to find flow in and so I'll say one more thing and then this might wrap it up here and you can build off it. So when I wrote my dissertation, coming back to that quote that the first and greatest victory is to conquer oneself, I showed how flow is a state where we 
we conquer oneself by becoming so absorbed in it. Whereas in a mindful state, we learn to conquer the self by learning to simply let go of the contents of consciousness. And through letting go of the contents of consciousness, I think we can develop or deepen or into that deeper sense of flow or, or presence uh, that makes it something that's not so elusive so that we can experience a sense of order and, and joy or what harmony we can call it in all of life's, uh, you know, moments so that's that's my that's my philosophy i think each person's going to have a, a different one at the end of the day though for me it comes back to my philosophy needs to guide me towards my values even if it's scary even if it's vulnerable even if it's painful i know that at the end of the day when i die if i look back on my life and say you know god damn it excuse my language if i i move towards what i care about in my life what i cared about and it was painful, it was suffering. I can have a sense of, of reward in knowing I was authentic. And when we talk about flow, I think that's one of the greatest benefits of flow is authentic self-expression. And so that's, that's, my, that's what I prioritize as uh, my highest flow activity is, is being true, so yeah. Mm, yeah, and, and nobody can really judge the truth, right? In that sense, so that's a wonderful thing that you just brought up, yeah. The authenticity and that that acceptance right the acceptance of the self and i think that's really powerful what you mentioned in terms of the vita i believe contemplated what was the other one vita uh, active or activa yeah yeah so would it make a difference if a person's flow profile were to say deep thinker like would that change in some way maybe they're not taking enough action uh would that process change i mean this is i'm just asking from your perspective yeah, so it's it's an interesting question, and I'll kind of pull it on some research. So um, there's research that shows that in different cultures, uh, people experience flow differently uh, because of uh, essentially what they're oriented towards. So in a more individualistic culture, uh, people tend to experience flow more and kind of self-actualizing their own goals, whereas in a more collectivist or um, let's say like a more traditionally Eastern culture, there, there might be a greater sense of flow and maintaining social harmony. So it, the, the experience itself is the same when someone's in a flow state, but the ways to access flow can be quite different for different individuals, depending on, on their, their makeup. So, sorry, I didn't answer your specific question though. If you ask me again, I, I kind of forget it. I know I went into there. Well, no, I was just uh, talking about if your flow profile, let's say you're, you are a deep thinker, Right. Um, would that change uh, that uh, ratio in terms of, you know, the Vita contemplative and the Vita active? Yeah. 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 It's great. Great question. Uh, I don't have any evidence to lean on, but my, my hunch would be that, you know, if you're a deep thinker, you have a high skill level of, of contemplation, right? And so there's going to be a, an increased capacity to move towards bigger intellectual risks, bigger intellectual goals. And, and therefore uh, find flow. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, and I wouldn't necessarily think that the, excuse me, the Vita active is uh, incongruent with deep thinking. I think you can have an action oriented state when you're moving towards, you know, solving problems or being creative and and so i think the vita contemplative was more a state around just having moments of self-reflection so i think a deep thinker can also find flow in vita active but it might not be a physical sport let's say or whatnot 
Right. That makes, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. I was wondering about this idea of, you know, the, the childlike nature of an individual, the playfulness, right? So being able to tap into that. And, you know, a lot of people talk about inner child, unless it's a big buzzword nowadays, right? So would you say that the, the inner child or the childhood in some ways, because it is such a suggestible, you know, time uh, that, you know, children are accessing this kind of deep hypnosis, theta, alpha, theta bridge uh, mm. state, like, do you think that there is value in people doing certain inner child work or, or anything along the, these lines? It's a really, really fantastic question. It's actually something that, um, you know, I have two older brothers. I got my ass kicked a lot as a kid. So I didn't, I didn't really have much of like a playful childhood. And, and it's, so it's interesting you're asking me this question. Um, what I would come to and something I'm learning a lot around is a great book. I encourage you to check it out. It's called um, Alive at Work by Daniel Cable. The subtext is the neuroscience of helping your people love what they do. It's a very, not much neuroscience, but essentially it speaks about turning on this uh, neural network called the seeking system. So you've probably learned in Art of Impossible, there's these, you know, there's a number of neural network systems and two that are really associated with flow is the seeking system and the, and the play system. So essentially the seeking system is when we're hunter gatherers, when we're adventuring, it all drops us into being very present and engaged. And same with playing. When we're playing, we're experimenting. We're curious. We, we suspend typical defenses that we take into non-play activities. And so it can all reduce the sense of um, the sense of self or this kind of frontal cortex hyperactivation. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by people who are playful. And like I said, I, I'm trying to get there a little bit more myself because it's not something that I was really raised to, to be able to experience a lot. And, and so I think that play is the highest form of, of human behavior and to stay in that state as much as possible uh, is something that I think we could all strive to and to kind of tap, tag it or kind of connect it back to flow a little bit more is when we go through a high flow activity, we do it for the sake of just doing it. We love flow because it feels effortless and, and that's what play is. There's, you know, that, you know, we play because we want to play and uh, we don't play because someone else told us to, it's just what we inherently want to do. And so, you know, even looking back in some of the research on play, uh, we can also look at that as really talking about flow. And so maybe even your question earlier around uh, having a sound philosophy for flow could be pulled on some of the philosophy of, of play as well. Wow, that's, that's amazing, that's wonderful. Uh, I was wondering about, you know, that, that idea of that and, you know, perhaps gamification or like optimizing. I know that there's the different strength finder, right? Positive psychology has all like these, these finders, yeah. strength, um, I know Clifton strength, uh, VIA strength, right? So I think that, yeah, for people who are looking towards really optimizing that genius play state, I think perhaps maybe that, that gamification or especially for us men, you know, we love like the video games and sports and things like that, right? So being able to like use our left brain in order for us to access the right in a sense would definitely be awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And so to build off that, just, you know, especially for people who are, um, you know, in careers, there's a few different ways that we can 
increase play in, in within our organization. So one is is trying to be a self leader. So learning how to continue to optimize our own motivational state, our own strategies is, is one way to stay kind of curious and engaged. Another is job crafting. So like really taking an active role in facilitating what kind of you know, roles do we want our job to take? And that's a, that can be a playful exper experiment, you know, how to talk to bosses or others as saying, you know, ideally I, these are the challenges I want to seek and these are the resources I want to gain and really trying to take an active job in crafting what one's career is can really increase a sense of meaning. And then, yeah, you know, this, this piece around play, um, I think that uh, Csikszentmihalyi actually argued that people are, are most human, free, and creative when they when they play. Um, there's a there's a capacity to kind of have what's called playful work design. So where you are, you know, whether it's trying to put time limits on certain tasks, uh, creating competition with others, trying to you you know bring amusement or humor or entertainment into their tasks. So how to prime something to be uh, to be funny, to to see the, the positive out of it. Uh, Competition is obviously a, a common way that people increase play. And then this last piece you hit here on strengths. When I think of the field of positive psychology, I often think of it as being a merger or marriage between, well, it was Martin Seligman, so much focus on strengths and values. And then Chick Set Me High, really this action oriented towards challenge state. And so strengths use and learning particularly how to use strengths in novel ways is a really fun activity I do with clients because strengths are something that we take for granted. It's just they're invisible skills. It's just like, you know, this is who I am. But, you know, if there's ways that we can get really clear on what our unique strengths are and see how can I play with these in different contexts, how can I lean towards this uh, within my relationships or, or what have you, that there's a, and we tend to find greater flow in, in, in optimizing our strengths. So it's a, it's a great place to start when doing some flow coaching for sure. Incredible. I love that. This is a juicy podcast, man. This is a lot of great stuff. Good, good, good. Oh, uh, so let me ask you let me ask you a quick question if you don't mind yeah absolutely so i'm wondering you know hmm, what what was your kind of peak flow state what, what what was maybe one of your yeah peak flow states and uh yeah i'm just curious to kind of get to know you a little bit more and what comes to mind for you yeah so for me it, one of them is definitely freestyle rapping uh, i yeah. i love just like being able to put on a beat and just be able to you know access that state i i watched eight mile when i was like nine years old and i got super into rap battling online on like text forums and things like that and yeah. at the time, you know i got so much i i guess uh, criticism because it's rap battling obviously right but also i was yeah. with a few like 13 year old indian guys you know rap battling online yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, recording my music because at that voice, um, my voice hadn't matured at that really young age, like nine years old, right? So I waited until my voice really matured and I started recording music. And when I record music, I just get into that zone. Absolutely. Like, you know, that, that's one of my, uh, you know, uh, I would say strengths. I love words. I love twisting. Have you read the articles on, on uh, flow and, and freestyle rappers? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. incredible. Yeah, man. Dope. Is there a way I can listen to any of your songs? Do you still have any of them published or? Yes, I do. Yeah. I'll, I'll link you to my sound club. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Oh, yeah. 
Nice. My uh, my best friend is a incredible freestyle rapper, and uh, I'll maybe introduce you guys one time. And it uh, his ability to drop into flow in in rap in freestyle rapping, and I can do it once in a while, but it's very rare. Uh, it's it lights up a whole room. And it, and that's the beautiful thing with flow is that when we see others in it, you know, whether we, we talk about mirror neurons or if we just talk about uh, uh, what's called, oh, shoot, what's it called here? Um, entrainment. So others, other people's physiological state can be reflected. It's, it's contagious, right? And so when you're in a freestyle battle and someone else is in flow, like this is a, it, it connects us in a deep way that we're often even unconscious of. So cool. Okay. So freestyle rapping. Nice. Yeah, man. And, and just exploring the different types of things that get me into the zone. I know breath work you mentioned, I do a lot of breath work, you know, yeah. um, ecstatic dance or just like freestyle dancing. Um, yeah, I, I kind of had a, a phase through college where I was experimenting with, you know, a bunch of stuff too. Yeah. But that's, again, that's, a, you know, that's a kind of cheat code way to access flow, I would say, you know? Yeah. And so learning about... I'm on, I'm on an advisory board for a psychedelic company. And so I, I, I'm looking very actively in the, the research around... I'm not sure if you've looked at all. I could send you some great articles on like the... Um, entropic brain theory mm -hmm. or by Robin Card Harris or um, yeah there's, it's the rebus rebus method or model it's it's fascinating to look at how uh, psychedelics can essentially uh, down regulate the default mode network shift us from what's called like a secondary consciousness in in the the ego to a primary consciousness and uh, yeah how that can help facilitate flow is a uh, it is a cheat code. I, I can see that it's a technology that we're using that's outside of ourselves. And yet for some people in particular who have, uh, you know, let's say treatment resistant depression or certain cancers or fears, it's, uh, it's a tool that I am uh, pretty passionate about helping uh, kind of bring into the forefront as well. So yeah. that's, that's wonderful work that you're doing, brother. Like, yeah, I think that there's definitely potential in that. And yeah. I think that for a lot of people, they kind of close themselves off to it, right? But we've had Kaikion, you know, in the Greek times, all this kind of stuff, you know, it, it's just, it's so important that we understand it better, you know? And I think that's why you doing research on it is so important for us at this time, because it's like, that's the thing that people really haven't really tapped into yet, or even the application of it. Right. So, yeah, thank you for that work that you're doing, brother. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Check out Levity Labs if you're interested. A lot of content will be coming out of, uh, from us from there. And it, uh, yeah, man, cool. So, I, I, a quick question, you know, I'll, I'll share with you is okay, so you freestyle rapping, dance, movement. And, you know, what about in your coaching? I'm curious, you know, for me, it, such a privilege to connect with people and, and these days that's often my deepest flow states is just like we are here just being fully present with you getting to know you see your beautiful smile you know you see your energy and, and so those are the moments that uh, make coaching so such a, a joy because uh yeah it feels like play a little bit right and um i guess that the key piece there that i'll share i'm sure some of your client or audiences are uh, audience members or coaches as well or managers and when we can step out of going into a coaching session thinking that we need to 
be deliberate about sharing theories or techniques and rather just focus on uh, the relationship between ourselves and the client and focus on the process that's unfolding or that interpersonal domain. That's where real, real coaching or real change happens. When I talk about like Sumed, like what's the space between you and I right now? Um, I feel like it's even changed just with me dropping this into the conversation here and now. And so, yeah, man, I, I don't know if that's because I, as a, you know, beginning psychologist, it was very hard because I was like, I need to do this and that. And then when I focus on just like the relationship piece itself and knowing that if I can just remove, help clients identify and remove the obstacles in their life, their natural tendency to self-actualize is going to take over. I don't need to have all the answers, but I, if I can remove those obstacles and, and a lot of that's relational. So, yeah. That's wonderful, man. Something that you said brought up for me, this idea of, you know, how, um, in the vagus nerve, I read something about, you know, how social interaction kind of gets you into that relaxed state when you really connect with someone. And I think that, yeah, that's what is incredible about flow state uh, coaching sessions that I do. Like I see people and I don't even go into trying to fix or, you know, trying to solve anything. It's like I get out of my own way and let the process happen, essentially. Right? And that's where the, the magic, the aha moments, the breakthroughs, that's, that's when they really kick in. Yeah. yeah, right. It's the when we're feeling safe and secure in a conversation yeah. or with, with others, it allows us to move from these deficiency needs of trying to fulfill safety and security to more growth needs. You know, once I feel secure in this relationship with you, now I can be like, all right, so Med, like, this is what I really want to go for. And I'm willing to do this now because I have some security to jump off on. And so, yeah, we see those moments where clients. Uh, once they get a little bit of rapport, get safe, they, they're willing to bring up a, li a little bit more. And um, yeah, it's quite a joy, right? It's quite a privilege. Absolutely, man. So I wanted to end on a note to really help people out. They're going through this time right now where India's had another lockdown, you know, just it's starting from tomorrow. So it's going to be wow. another time for us to just, you know, lock in and really get focused on our individual flow state instead of the group flow. So um yeah, for the people listening, I know that, you know, job security is kind of a big thing going around right now, specifically. Um, could you speak into the terms of like, you know, burnout in this state of like being at home or like going on Zoom meetings, not wearing pants, you know, just going on a Zoom meeting or whatever, or like, you know, this idea of overexertion. Because when I was, uh, when I was doing a, a bit of Qigong training and things like that, I know they talked about the 70% rule on in terms of like not giving it a hundred percent when you're doing a task, it's like give it, give it 70 and then keep back 30% for your own internal glow. And so that brought up this idea of like, how can we maintain that when we're really wrapped up in work or, you know, in Japan, they have Kiroshi, like death from overwork and things like this. Right. So, you know, how can people start to, I guess, fall in love with the process of working from home and like, you know, dealing with the lockdown. Oh, what's your perspective on that? Big question, man. Uh, big, big question. I'm feeling like there's so many different ways that I could try to approach this, but I want to be, um, yeah, and I'm feeling some pressure to be as, as helpful as possible. And, you know, I, I think let's just first quickly look at what is considered uh, the triggers for burnout. So, this is from uh, Christina Maslach's work. There's kind of six burnout triggers that I think, you know, 
the audience members can think about and, and see, okay, do a, a, an evaluation to see where they're at. So the first is a lack of control. So your sense of control over what you do is undermined or limited, and you don't have a lot of say in what's going on. So it's important to do a quick evaluation there is, you know, do I have this, this internal or uh, locus of control or is it external and, and how can I work with that? The next kind of factor in this burnout scale is values conflict. So is the, is the values that I have as an individual in conflict with my organization or workplaces values? And so do an evaluation there. Is there sufficient rewards? So typically when we're feeling taken for granted, not recognized or undercompensated, we can, that can trigger uh, flow, or sorry, not flow, uh, burnout as well. The, the, the three other triggers are over, overwork, uh, unfairness, so where people are just, you know, they have a culture of favoritism, where promotions are arbitrary, where there's kind of things are not discussed transparently, but behind closed door, closed doors. And then the last uh, burnout trigger is this kind of breakdown in community. And that might be something that you're particularly hitting on here with uh, people working from home, being on a lockdown, that there's this breakdown in community. And I find, I have found, sorry, that during COVID, the best organizations are those that have doubled down on how to maintain a sense of community uh, through, throughout this process. And so what I mean by kind of maintaining a sense of community, maybe I can pull on some of the group flow triggers is how do you help your, your team or your organizations feel like they're in a shared goal here? How do we really reestablish the sense of a shared goal? How do we really establish a sense that there's equal participation? Like, how do we know that everyone has equal skin in the game here? And, and then the, a few other pieces is, um, uh, right then, uh, is increased familiarity. So a lot of the times when we're separate from each other now, we're not learning as much as we do when we you know, bump into a colleague at the water fountain or at the cafe or whatever it may be. And so if there's more ways that we can increase in, um, continuing to develop familiarity with each other, these are just a, a few things to be mindful of regarding uh, burnout. And the last piece I'll just add to try to be really uh, poignant to your question is <clears throat> when we talk about flow, we talk about it, we haven't gone really much into it as this floor, sorry, four stage cycle. So the first stage is struggle, then release, flow, recovery. Struggle is when we start a task, let's say for the day, and we're getting cognitively overloaded with what we need to learn. And, and we're trying to kind of gather all the information. We shift into this beta brainwave state. We're agitated, there's cortisol. And so the release stage is so important to step out of that task reduce, kind of flush the nervous system so we can get back into the task, find flow, and then build recovery on the back end to get our neurobiology reset to go through that struggle again. And so what I want to offer to your clients is to think about, or sorry, to your audience, is to think about how do they structure their working day at home through going through these flow cycles. So, you know, typically people might go through one in the morning that's around health and fitness. And then they might have one that's, you know, specifically around work before, uh, before their, their lunchtime. And then they'll go through another work flow cycle in the afternoon. And then the last flow cycle and really that recovery stage goes into their evening. So why I share this as kind of a, a very practical framework is because I want people to be prioritizing uh, release activities and recovery. I want people to be focused on uh, sleep and focused on finding moments where they can 
decompress from this constant stress and what we call VUCA. So volatility, uncertainty, complexity, these kind of VUCA times. And, and to actually learn how to use that to their advantage, which is only possible if we're first prioritizing our neurobiology by resting and releasing effectively. And so that's a, a few things that, you know, one way to assess, are you close to on the verge of burnout? Those six um, factors from Christina Maslach's burnout trigger is a, is a good place to, to look. And then to try to prioritize utilizing this flow cycle and really focusing on those release and recovery activities so that when you step back into that struggle stage and that flow block stage you're able to be as productive as you want and uh, maybe lastly I, I just want to say that this connection piece is so what we needed you know with with this ankle injury for instance the the support that I've had even just with people helping me get ice getting me wraps getting me crutches like all of that you start to realize and maybe this is a nice thing to end off just how fucking interdependent we all are with people and how you know what we aren't independent and and when we can open up to that sense of interdependentness i mean this is what all the great religions and mystic you know traditions shared is that we feel a sense of connectedness and there's power in that there's power in knowing that you know this this bottle of water here you know there's hundreds of people that contributed to that and you know the fact that i'm connected to them and the fact that i'm connected to uh millennia of human beings that have overcome so many great challenges different pandemics whatever it may be there's a there's a lineage of power that we're all connected to and and i think that uh it's important for us to not get too individual in our pursuit of overcoming um this this pandemic and to leverage the power of feeling connected to others so i went on on there i hope some of that's helpful for you there we're in the flow brother <laughs> yeah. yeah awesome so um we're gonna end on two notes so one i want to ask you top sleep hack what would people do during this time like what what is one thing that you would recommend for people who can't sleep or going through insomnia you're asking just one. It's just hard because uh, I want to throw so many. T a top sleep hack, I'll just say, is um, gratitude. Do a gratitude night at the end of the night. There's good research that supports that gratitude can fac facilitate good sleep. And it comes back to that sense of uh, uh, security. So I'll say gratitude. Excellent. And the final question we have here is, if you can yell through a universal megaphone, right? Uh -huh. and one message across the entire globe, uh, what would you tell the entire mm. globe? Uh, that you are loving awareness. Wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> so much for being here, Brent. I uh, really appreciate you, brother. And Thank you. Yeah, this is your time to plug yourself. Where can people find you? Where can they sure. find out your work? Yeah, yeah, sounds great. So flowresearchcollective.com, that's where you can learn more about our programs at FRC. Uh, you can see our great team that we work with there and get some resources. My personal website is just my name, brenthogarth.com, uh, B-R-E-N-T-H-O-G-A-R-T-H. Follow me on Instagram or Twitter if you'd like, or LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not too organized these days on, on social media, but uh, I share certainly some resources. I, I share some of my personality and my own kind of craft and, and mission towards uh, running ultra marathons and, uh, and focus really much on, on my fitness. So uh, yeah, I'd love to connect with people. Please follow me there. Um, 
invite me to different clubhouse rooms and uh, please I'm, I'm saying that to you as well if there's ever some clubhouse rooms i can jump on and, and connect with people I, I i love that app i think it's super cool and uh yeah that's uh that's how you can connect with me and you know i i love india i can't wait to get back to india it's uh it's a really special spot in, in my heart and uh, i think maybe i have some previous lives there so i i just i would love to connect with you out there and, and others and um find some flow out there so let's uh let's stay connected uh, and again thank you for the opportunity to jump on your podcast here today and uh connect with uh some of your uh, your followers and and uh, listeners here awesome brett thank you so much once again brother and may the flow be with you brother yeah <laughs> all right Doug. thank you brother If you enjoyed this Flow Awakening episode, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow at Flowzone Academy on Instagram. That's at F-L-O-Z-O-N-E-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. May the flow be with you and stay legendary. Until next time, Flowmies.